Welcome to California Groundbreakers, which focuses on the place that starts trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done nationwide and around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. We've created a podcast series called This Changes Everything, which focuses on what California will look like in the post-pandemic future. We're talking with California groundbreakers about how they see the Golden State changing for the better or for the worse, or still to be determined, as we move out of shutdown. If you like what you hear, please help us continue by making a podcast creation donation. Click on the Support Us link on our SoundCloud podcast page or on the Donate tab of our website, californiagroundbreakers.org. Now that California is reopening, where do we go and how do we get there? This episode focuses on the future of transportation in the state, from clean cars and electric trucks to high-speed rail and highway removals. California has often been a pioneer in transportation and trying to innovate ways of moving people around. As we emerge from the pandemic, will the latest innovations be copied by other states, and will they be good for you as a driver, a transit user, and a taxpayer? Join us as we talk about trains, cars, roads, railways, and bridges with three people who are working on innovations in all of those things. In part one, we're talking with Robert Powers, the general manager of Bay Area Rapid Transit, BART for short, which serves the San Francisco Bay Area and is the fifth busiest public transit system in the U.S. In part two, it's a conversation with Craig Segal, Deputy Executive Officer at the California Air Resources Board. He is in charge of its Clean Cars program and making sure that the state meets its goal of having all new cars and trucks sold here be zero emission vehicles by the year 2035. And in part three, we'll talk with Jeannie Ward-Waller, Deputy Director of Planning and Modal Programs at Caltrans. She is the agency's future-looking planner, working on how to improve our highways, bridges, train tracks, and other transit routes for future generations. Hi, everyone. My name is Vanessa Richardson. I'm Executive Director of California Groundbreakers, and thank you for tuning in today on our three-part episode about transportation. So we won't be talking about planes in this one. That's for a couple of weeks from now about the future of travel. But we will be talking about trains and automobiles and the routes they use to travel around California. Our previous episode was about the future of urban planning and rural planning now that so many people have moved or are moving out of places like the San Francisco Bay Area to places like Lake Tahoe and the Central Valley. So I am assuming that those migration trends are being looked at by transportation experts right now because they will translate into new and different ways that people travel by car, train, and modes of public transit. So that's why I thought it would be great to do a deep dive into transportation for this episode and find out the predictions and plans for how we'll be using trains and automobiles and transportation routes going forward. So to start, we're gonna focus now on trains and public transit. And to talk with me about that is Bob Powers. He is a general manager at Bay Area Rapid Transit, or BART for short. It serves the San Francisco Bay Area, obviously. And even with the gut punch of the pandemic driving down passenger use to historic lows, it is still the fifth busiest public transit system in the U.S. So, Bob, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So it's been 15 months, and I think we all know, as I just mentioned, the pandemic did a number on use of public transit. But I was wondering right now, what is the current status? What are some notable things you're seeing in terms of use when people are using public transit now? How, you know, are they inching forward, tiptoeing in? Are they, you know, coming back in droves? What's the current status that no, you're seeing? I, I think it's a very um, positive outlook. Our ridership, BART's ridership is starting to come back. We're just under 20% um, compared to pre-COVID. And we are, our low was at about 6%. So we're starting to be right back on the upswing. And I think that's um, very consistent with a lot of the other operators in the Bay Area. Um, and so that's very positive. Um, and we are all collectively, the operators, you know, making um, decisions collectively here and, and um, encouraging riders to come back, improving, um, you know, our, our, um, communications on what we're doing on cleanliness and safety and um, air filter. So it, it is a very, I think there's, um, uh, it's a move in the, in the positive direction here. 
And I know there are some incentives that you are offering uh, between now and uh, later on this fall to get people back on. What are you What are you offering to get people? Yeah. So first and foremost, um, probably the largest uh, in the history of BART for the month of September, all of our fares, all the Clipper fares, where that's our tag on tag off system, will be fifty percent off. And um, we're doing that to encourage riders to come back into the transportation network here. Um, in the Bay Area, if, if um, I'm sure your listeners are tracking on it, the, um, the roadway network is already back to, you know, pre-COVID congestion levels. So what we would like is, you know, folks to come back in and, and we're giving them an incentive, you know, to make transit their, their, you know, their first choice to come back into the, you know, re-engage if it's going to the office, going to a ball game, going to a show. And I read recently that BART passed its most recent budget. Uh, congratulations. Thank but you. It, <laughs> it sounds like it's a, a little different. I know there's uh, federal funding. There was uh, pandemic funding. There's talk about, uh, obviously, Joe Biden's uh, infrastructure plan and where the funding can be. But it does seem like even before the pandemic, uh, budget issues were always an issue with public transit. Uh as, and with BART as well, I'm sure, chronically underfunded. I'm wondering with this budget, if you could just give us a sense of what what are what did you have to decide in terms of trade-offs? Because I, I bring this up, I was reading a story about the budget, and it sounded like right now the budget's going to allow BART to increase train service, more frequent trips, extended hours, which, it's, which is great. But it also has to... Uh, makes targeted investments to reduce long-term costs and maintain critical infrastructure to keep the Bay Area moving. So I guess there's short-term things that you have to focus on now. Long-term things may be pushed back. So just give us a sense of the decisions you had to make and what what trade-offs you needed to make for short and medium and long-term. Yeah. So when we we um, looked at our riders, we looked at our service models we had some performance metrics that we were evaluating, you know, certainly was, you know, putting the service back out there, but um, other, there were other metrics there. One was equity. Um, one was, you know, financial. Um, and there was a couple of other, there's a couple of other performance measures there, but um, you know, so BART is right now, BART's the lifeline, literally the lifeline for many in the Bay area. Uh, roughly 50% of the folks taking BART right now have incomes under 50,000 and about 75% identify as non-white. Um, and um, for many, they don't have access to a car. And for many, you know, th their only option is BART. So when we went to put our service plan in there, we were very deliberate about making sure that BART was still providing reliable transportation out there. So in June, we increased um, trains uh, during the weekdays by 26 and on Saturdays by 16. And then we're really putting back in, in, in September full service. And so what we got to, we have to keep our eye on, and that's why we have our incentive program in, in uh, September half off. We got to, we have to very much um, put ourselves out there you know, and make sure that folks understand that transit should be the first um, option for them. Um, we're in the we are at the at a pivotal moment in our climate crisis right now, and and transportation is the number one uh, factor with our greenhouse gas emissions in, in the Bay Area in California. The best thing folks can do is to get on public transit um, and to be part of the solution there for this, this climate crisis that we're in right now. And um, to do that, you know, BART and other transit agencies have to put the service out. We can't be, you know, three months behind, folks want to come back and the service isn't there. You know, that'll spiral, you know, uh, and we'll never get out of that. So we got to keep our eye on the ridership. And then we're going to have to work very closely with Sacramento um, and our lawmakers in Sacramento and Washington, D.C., because you're right. You kind of alluded to it. You know, historically, the United States really hasn't funded public transportation um, nowhere to the, you know, to the levels that, you know, Europe and Asia have funded public transit to, you know, and with this climate crisis, you know, there needs to be a shift in that kind of thinking.
Yeah. And I was going to ask about that. Do you think that now is this crisis moment, you know, like you said, pandemic and now climate change, where lawmakers in the state are going to listen to you more and respond? And also now with D.C., I mean, Joe Biden is making this front and center, um, having to get it through Congress, though, we'll see. But do you feel like your words are now going more into ears and, and, and people are paying attention? What do you see happening going forward? Unequivocally, I, I think um, the collective voice of transportation in the U.S. Um, is um, being heard more frequently. And, um, I, you know, it's probably being listened to more because, you know, transportation is at the heart of this of this uh, climate crisis that's going on right now. Um, you know, in California with the wildfires and the, you know, extreme heat events and um, it, it really, transportation is at the heart of the solution set there. And I think lawmakers are realizing that and are listening to folks like me and other transit agencies throughout the nation. Another group of people are, I'm just going to say, white collar workers who have the opportunity, the choice to work from home now more than before the pandemic. Yeah. Um, have a choice to ride public transit uh, if they want or they don't want. And I, I alluded to the, art, uh, the article, the episode that we did on uh, urban planning and now rural because so many are moving away. They're using their cars more maybe or maybe less because they can work from home. Does that concern you? You know, what about white collar workers in the Bay Area? What what are your thoughts about that group, and uh, what are you doing, if anything, to try to get them to come back yeah. on Bart? Yeah. So, two, um, it's an excellent question, um, and my response um, that I give on this is, I don't need to compete. I, I don't like to think that I have to compete against that. I, what I need to do um, is to um, uh, be part of that. And so, um, what I mean about about that is I need to be, when folks are coming back into the office, if it's three days a week, two days or four days a week, I want those folks coming back in on public transit, right? So I need to be, you know, part of that thought process and in, in thinking. What I, what I got to get out there and articulate is the benefits of taking public transit in when they do those trips um, and be complementary to that kind of a lifestyle, you know, and, you know, make the case that, if public transit is way better than, you know, getting on a congested freeway for, you know, 90 minutes one way, paying for parking, and then doing the reverse, you know, come and ride BART, um, you're into where you need to go, you're back, and you're part of this climate crisis that we have, a climate crisis solution that we have going on right now. And another term that has been spoken about so much in the past 15 months is equity. And we, you talked about that up top. What was interesting to me when I was researching for this episode, I came across an NPR uh, segment on uh, ridership of uh, public transit during the really darkest hours of the pandemic this past winter. Um, and even though across the board, public transit uh, ridership was down, essential workers, their ridership was about the same, similar to what it was because they had to, obviously they had to go to work. Right. And there was a person here was who was quoted who said, the majority of people in this country are working class and middle class people, and that's who the system should be designed for. And I'm wondering, you know, in the Bay Area, is this the system, are they the, is it a system designed, Bart, for working class and middle class people? And should it be? And for example, like, should it be free ridership? Should it be discounted ridership? Should there be more, um, you know, equity there? What does that look like? And can it be achieved? Yeah. So I would say it is. It's designed for working class right now. I Unequivocally, I would say that. it. I, I would argue BART is the most accessible public transit agency um, in the U.S., uh, from a mobility standpoint, from an access standpoint, I, it is what I like to call the people system, first and foremost. Um, and as, you know, with the pandemic hitting us, we we saw the demographics of folks that were taking BART, you know, really 
became a lifeline for those folks. And that's why we were very deliberate in the, you know, restoring the service that we put out there in the way, in the manner that we did that. Um, and we're going to continue to do that. And we also saw a change in our station use. You know, it was, you know, to your point, um, you know, pre-pandemic, you know, it was the, the commuter stations going in and out of the job centers that were the most busy. Um, the pandemic hit, you know, that, you know, kind of backed off. And these stations were the, um, the community surrounding the stations really had no other choice but to take public transit to get into their job. That ridership, you know, we changed and they bumped up into the, you know, the more used stations. And we continue to see that right now. Um, and so we're very cognizant of that. And I always like to call BART the people system. I, I wanted to also ask, I think there was a project, there, or there is a project called Link 21, which is expanding routes to connect to more cities in the, in the Bay Area. And I guess the, 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 the metro Bay Area, which probably, you know, goes all the way now to me where I live in Sacramento. We have yep. the Capitol Corridor, obviously. But what's... Yes, I guess as, as we are moving farther inland and farther afield, what is the status um, and what's the possibility of uh, BART connecting to other public transit systems and, and making this area more um, accessible? It is. That's what that project is all about. It's called Link 21, and it is it does capture you, uh, the 21 counties that goes all the way north of Sacramento. And it is. It's looking at that. It's called the mega region you know, and treating that region as a whole, because that's kind of what the, the economy is around uh, in, in Northern California, this mega Northern California economy. And we're looking at right now on where the folks are and where they want to go and looking at those bottlenecks. And that's what Link 21 is all about, identifying those and improving public transportation. And it's not just BART, BART's its own, I'm an engineer, um, and so I have a, you know, a, a couple of degrees in engineering and BART's its own gauge, its own, you know, track gauge, but then there's standard gauge. And this, this project looks at both together and how we can improve the overall mobility of the Bay Area. And, it, you know, it's not BART focused. It's, it's this whole mega region focus. BART and Capital Core just happen to be leading that effort, but it is all about how you and I and many, many others in the in the Northern California region are going to get around in the next 20 years. So obviously, yes, I was going to say it's going to take a few years for things yeah. to to move. But where where is it right now? Is it still in like evaluation stage, research stage or any? No, right now we're we're in the data collection stage. We're doing our our modeling and where folks are. It's called an origins and destination study to get all the data. And then from the data, we'll find where the, the points of uh, constriction are or restriction are. And we'll try to, you know, pull together a series of projects that, you know, kind of blast through there. And that really maximizes um, public transportation in the next 20 years here. So I have a couple more questions for you. The first one being, what have you learned or what has the last 15 months taught you in your role managing BART? Um, a couple of things. One, the import, the importance, really, or the um, the reaffirmation. I can, if I can use that term, of what public transportation means to a region. Um, it, you know, um, when things are going good and you know ridership is high and you know you're, you you know you're you have one kind of thought process, but you know we really are the lifeline, and I, I don't use that term very lightly. For many, many people in the Bay Area, you know, with our affordable housing crisis that we have going on right now and, you know, people getting pushed further and further out to find a decent quality of life and um, public transportation is at the heart of, of um, you know, a, a quality of life here that, you know, needs to be sustained. And it, it was probably that was the biggest thing, the reaffirmation of that and the doubling down of how important equity is in maintaining, um, you know, you know, public transportation and frequency headways and lines throughout the Bay Area. That that's first and foremost. And then I would I would say the um, the link between public transportation and the economy. And um, I would argue that you know 
the economy doesn't recover in any region without public transportation and vice versa. And they are so intricately tied together. Um, you know, it was, um, you know, kind of uh, reaffirming on that front as well. My last question is what, how can BART survive? Well, not survive, but thrive really, because it feels like, again, as we were mentioning pre-pandemic, there were just a lot of issues that BART had to deal with. Then the pandemic came. And regardless of whether federal funding comes through um, or white collar workers get on, it seems like something needs to change. What needs to change that so BART can keep going and and better su support and serve the people that it should be serving? Yeah, I, I think um, one, you know, you kind of touched on it, this, you know, the concept of Link 21, but um, but this this um, you know in in California in Northern California there's this Plan Bay Area 2050 and you know and it's kind of sets the future and you know Bart is really at the heart of that and what we need to do is just follow through on you know this Link 21 concept this Plan Bay Area um, and continue to put housing you know where there is public transportation you know and that's what Bart you know that hasn't changed that's a you know we haven't talked about that but we have pushed and continue to push, you know, development around BART stations throughout the system. That that effort and that market really hasn't been hit dramatically with with COVID nineteen, and we've doubled down on that. So the region, if we can continue to do, you know, the elements that are in Plan Bay area and put more and more housing by public transportation, I think that's going to be very helpful and, and kind of address a lot of a lot of challenges in California from affordable housing to, you know, the uh, the sustainability and the climate crisis that we have going on, and let alone our, you know, public transportation, the ridership and um, fare revenue challenges that we have. So interesting. Every episode we've done in this uh, podcast series, I think 13, even dating, uh, it all boils down to housing, housing in California. Uh, that's always such a key, key role. Um, but so is public transit. So Bob, thank you very much for talking with us about it. Um, keep the trains going. And uh, I look forward to riding BART again when I go back into the Bay Area. Very good. And very nice meeting you and very nice being part of your podcast here. From better, faster, stronger public transit, we move to clean cars and electric trucks that help in the battle against climate change. Join us now for part two as we talk with Craig Segal of California's Air Resources Board about how he's going to electrify California with new zero emission vehicles and how he's going to get us Californians to buy only those types of cars by the year 2035. Hi everyone, we're moving to part two of this discussion about transportation in the post-pandemic era. And now we're talking about cars because cars will be part of the post-pandemic future, let's face it. Californians love their cars for the most part, but those cars and trucks and other vehicles will be very different if the California Air Resources Board has its way. So briefly, a definition of the California Air Resources Board, or CARB, as it's known for short, is that it is charged with protecting the public from harmful effects of air pollution, and it's developing programs and actions to fight climate change. CARB has been a pioneer for setting the standard for effective air and climate programs in the U.S., and in the past four years, it has not hesitated to go head-to-head -head with the Trump administration in fighting against rollbacks that threaten California's air pollution and climate change work. One of the people responsible for creating CARB's defense strategy in court against the Trump administration was Craig Siegel, who was just appointed in mid-May to be CARB's deputy executive officer of mobile sources and incentives. So in his new role, Siegel will lead the effort to clean up and electrify California's transportation sector, particularly its cars and trucks. And that's what I want him to talk about today are California's cars and trucks and mobile vehicles of the future, how they'll operate what they'll run on to power up and go, how he plans to get us millions of Californians to use them, and how CARB's plans will impact the future of transportation in the state. So Craig, welcome and thank you for joining me today. Glad to be here. So I was doing research and I'm I, I'm a, I'm, I drive a car. That's basically my connection to cars. I don't know really all the guts um, uh, and what the what the 
the future of the new car I may be driving will look like or run like. But I was obviously doing research on what CARB has planned. And I came across one of the main things up on the website was the Clean Cars program. So I wanted to ask you, just give us an overview of what that program is and currently where it stands right now in terms of the timeline that you have planned for it. Sure. So this has been at the core of our work for California for decades now. And it comes from the days when you couldn't see the mountains from LA. And one thing I think about early in the pandemic is how clean the air became when people stopped driving. And the hope is to go from that place to a place where we get around and the air stays that clean, no matter what we're driving or walking or riding. So the Clean Cars program has many facets, but it's fundamentally about moving the entire auto industry to sell zero emission vehicles um, to all Californians and indeed across the country, providing the infrastructure we need to charge them and make that easy, and ultimately making it possible for everyone with existing cars to get around California in a clean and healthy way. So I wanted to ask you also about zero emission vehicles, and I guess ZEB for short, that's the acronym that they go under, at least the terminology, ZEBs. But um, what what are what are those? Just a, a layman's terms for those of us who aren't familiar so much with zero zero emission vehicles yet. Sure. Well, they are much better vehicles. Think of a battery or what we call a fuel cell, which is basically a, a hydrogen battery um, attached to wheels. So the first thing you ought to know about these is they drive better than ordinary cars. They accelerate faster. They have better torque. They can go you know great distances and they don't break down. Think of an ordinary car with this engine full of gas and parts and you know clinking together. These things really are closer in some ways to computers than traditional vehicles. They're way more sophisticated and they have almost no moving parts. What that means is you have a much, much longer life in your vehicle, better acceleration and better durability. So they're, they aren't just cleaner, they're ultimately cheaper and better to own. And, and this is, I think a key thing is, it's never again making trips to the gas station to fill up. So basically a Tesla, a Tesla Model S, or um, that is a, that's a prime example of a zero emission vehicle. Well, the Teslas are fun, but I want to be clear that, you know, Ford and GM and Honda and Toyota and all the other big companies are making these too. So this isn't sort of, you know, a cool roadster for the super rich. This is making all vehicles run off electric power directly rather than this sort of antiquated step of filling them up with gasoline or diesel first. So it's just way more efficient to run. And this could be anything from just a little car to get around town to, as we just heard, you know, a new F-150 from Ford. So it's that whole range of vehicles and all of them will be ultimately zero emission powered by electricity. And just, I guess this past year, uh, our governor, Gavin Newsom, announced that the goal uh, by 2035, so 14 years from now, 100% of in-state sale of new passenger cars and trucks will be zero emission. So that's a that seems like an ambitious goal, 14 years. And it seems like there's some people, I know one of them is my dad, uh, who loves his Camaro. What does that mean for current cars? Uh, he, his question, I actually, he wanted me to ask is like, are you going to like yank gas stations off the roads to force people into new cars? So I guess to quell... To, this is a part two question. How do you see this goal of 100% by 2035 unfolding? And how will you convince people who love their, you know, classic cars that take gas to, to move over to uh, Zebs? Well, I mean, the president is also a sports car guy. And as you know, he said about the new electric pickup truck that that sucker's fast and he's right. So your dad can peel out just as fast an electric car and probably <laughs> faster than he done his, his Camaro. Oh, God um, but we aren't, you know, we aren't taking away choices here. You know, the goal here is whether it's powered by hydrogen, electricity, some other clean source, um, you can just drive around like usual. And we're talking about new vehicles here. This isn't a ban on gas cars. This is moving forward. What you can buy is gonna be powered by a different engine. You may not know that, except that it's going to drive faster and last longer, but it's the same basic set of choices you have today. For folks in existing cars, um, we've offered a huge amount of incentives. So the governor has put billions of dollars into the budget this year, and this will keep being true, funded in part by our cap and trade program, um, to help get people into newer vehicles. And, and I want to make this clear, also give them choices. You know, we need to be designing cities where you don't have to drive around to get from point A to point B. So we're also funding other mobility options, transit, transport, helping build dense and affordable housing. It's all part of the mix. But ultimately, 
We're talking about a California where you can get around a lot more easily, where your vehicle's a lot less likely to break down, and where there's a large network of chargers for you easily to recharge it whenever you need to. So I think that would be okay. Well, we will see. I think it also a thing, a concern I, that he mentioned and maybe some other people may have is price. Because it does seem like with new cars, you know, they start out at a certain price point that may be higher. And, uh, uh, and then as, you know... Um, the public adapt and they become more widespread. The price goes down, but in it, to start off, especially with this fourteen-year goal that we're you know trying to achieve, twenty thirty-five, are there any financial incentives, any um, uh, programs to help people buy? You know, do you have any th- uh, things that you can tell us about the financial um, convincing people financially to to shell out the money or help them to to pay for it? You bet. So just a few points. First of all, we absolutely do have programs. So as I've said, the governor and the legislature put billions of dollars behind this out of our carbon market programs. So you're talking about, you know, on the hood rebates, you're talking about cash for clunkers sorts of deals. You know, we really, and we really focus those on folks um, who may not have the income to buy a new car. So the goal here is to really help everyone get into a vehicle if they need to. But the second point to say is these cars are ultimately a lot cheaper. Um, not only is it a lot cheaper to charge them than to buy a taking gas, they last a lot longer and they break down a lot less long. So once you're in one of these vehicles, you're going to get a better deal. It's a smaller part of your overall household budget. So that's a, another big deal. And finally, you know, we're putting a lot of public money to help jumpstart the process into getting these charger networks set up. And when I think about all of that, um, I think about the progress of other kinds of technologies. You know, car batteries used to cost a lot more than did now. But these cars costs come down every year even faster than we thought they would. It's a lot like you think about what a cell phone looked like in the year 2000 or heck, 14 years ago. 14 years from now, these technologies are going to be a lot cheaper and they will be pervasive as, as all these giant auto companies are building these vehicles. So although we are delighted to provide incentives, ultimately, you're looking at a world where these are cheaper and better than the cars we've got right now. And speaking of the giant auto companies, um, are you working with them? It did. It did seem like with that that uh, the fight uh, with the Trump administration, car companies had to pick sides, and it seemed like a lot of them did side with California. So the private sector, how how much is CARB working with the private sector on creating these cars and the programs, and and is that innovative in itself to have uh, the private sector, you know, uh, working with them in in this way? Yeah, we talk with them every day. And we also try to think about labor interests. We think about communities. We think about the whole supply chain because it needs to bring everyone along in a just way. And, you know, I guess my view is especially, you know, we've seen both in California and across America that companies really rise to the challenge when you ask them. So this is a place where you see all these global automakers, whether they're looking at our goals or the European unions or some of um, the Asian countries, they know this is where the future is. Um, and so they know this is where they're moving. So that's why they're pledging to make their whole fleets, you know, zero emission, basically on this timetable. So we're happy to help push that along and learn from them and they learn from us. But this is where the future is going. That's why there's so much private investment here too. Now I'm interviewing you on a day up here in Sacramento where I live, where it's going to be 109. Tomorrow it'll be 107. And they're threatening... Uh, I don't know if they're threatening, but rolling blackouts are uh, a potential. So we're looking, uh, there's so much discussion about the electric grid when it comes to heat waves like this, but it feels like uh, talking about the electric grid when it comes to the zero emission vehicles and uh, the electrification of uh, vehicles in general, the grid is a big deal. So uh, what is the plan for making that reliable and so that there's no power outages when it comes to to our cars and what we drive. Yeah. yeah, we've been working with the energy agencies, so the folks who regulate the grid, to think about both how we strengthen the grid and how we make it more reliable. Now, as you move toward these vehicles, the relationship between them and the grid changes because they can store and generate power. So they can actually help balance the grid and make it more reliable. As we've seen some of these new products, they can also be generators. So today, if the grid does go down, you might need an old dirty diesel backup generator to power your house. So just blasting air pollution at your neighbors. I'd prefer a future where you plug in your car and it powers your house for you so, cleanly. So what we're looking at is both an affirmative program to make sure the grid can take the load and work differently. But also when you've got a future where your cars are also batteries, you have a lot more options for reliability than you do today and cleaner reliability. 
My last question for you is about the equity part of, of the program. And this is something that I'm asking uh, each of the three people I'm interviewing for this episode is making sure everybody has equal and equitable access to the cars, uh, to the charging stations and, and, um, and no one's left behind. And I feel like with, with this, especially with cars, I mean, obviously we're talking about underserved neighborhoods, but especially in rural parts of California, uh, maybe where there's a lot of miles to drive and maybe not, there might be that consideration of, you know, accessibility to the supplies that you need. So what, where does equity and, um, equitable access come in uh, for the programs that you're in charge of now? Equity is at the absolute core of the work. The system needs to work for everybody. California built its roads and systems that concentrated air pollution um, in some of our poorest and minority communities. And we've created a rural landscape where you need to buy an expensive car to get around and then fill it with expensive gas. It doesn't work for anybody. So the goal throughout this is to use both the incentives and the design of our rules to drive out infrastructure throughout all these landscapes built, you know, with well-paying labor that can create the charging network to ensure that people can buy used cars and new cars for reasonable prices, that state money can help back that up where we need to, and that there are other transportation options. I mean, there is no reason why California can't have great public transport, clean vehicles for personal use, and a great charging network. And that makes sense. That's how you build a resilient economy coming out of this enormous shutdown and crisis we've just been through. So I really think, you know, the metric here is not ultimately what powers the car. It's, you know, whether the community has a clean and healthy way to get around. And that informs a great deal of the work. And I want to say, it's not just us thinking this. It's us asking the question, engaging with communities, learning what they need, then trying to design the programs in ways that serve them. So we're really trying to both build and learn as we go. Actually, one last question I do have for you. I'm wondering what you're driving right now, what kind of car you're driving, and or what kind of car you're eyeing, like what would be the dream car, you know, once it becomes electric uh, that you're eyeing for your own personal use? You know, I only ride a bike. I don't have a car. <laughs> that's that's probably the most efficient trans transportation around. That's pretty good. Well, you know, actually, now that the F-150 is electric, I, I will recommend that to my dad. I think that will... Uh, maybe ease some of the C Camaro concerns. But Craig, thank you very much for your time and good luck with all the programs and rolling it out. Uh, 14 years to go, but it sounds like this is going to be very exciting to watch and, uh, and see on the roads. Thank you. We'll do our best. Hi, my name is Caleb Clark, executive producer of California Groundbreakers Podcasts. We're working on more episodes of This Changes Everything, literally as I speak, but putting them together takes a fair amount of time and money. If you like what you're hearing in this episode and you want to hear more of them, you can help us in two ways. First, consider being a Groundbreakers supporter right now by making a podcast creation donation. Click on the Support California Groundbreakers box on the right-hand side of our podcast page on SoundCloud. That's at soundcloud.com slash Groundbreakers or click on the Donate tab on the homepage of our website, californiagroundbreakers.org. Thanks for lending us your ears and giving us your support as well. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to part three of our episode all about post-pandemic transportation in California. So we've talked about trains, we've talked about cars, and now we're going to talk about the roads, bridges, and tracks that they travel on. And honestly, what would a discussion about California transportation be without a talk about the California Department of Transportation, which we all fondly know as Caltrans. It manages the state's highways and freeways. It supports public transportation systems throughout the state, and it provides funding and oversight for three inner city rail routes in California, which are the Capitol Corridor, that runs between Sacramento and San Jose, more or less, the Pacific Surfliner, which goes along the coast between San Diego and San Luis Obispo, and the San Joaquin, which runs from Bakersfield up through the Central Valley. So to give us an overview of what Caltrans is planning for post-pandemic transportation, I'd like to welcome Jeannie Ward-Waller, Deputy Director of Planning and Modal Programs. And I wanted to, I asked her uh, before we started, what does that mean, honestly? <laughs> and she's basically the best person uh, here uh, that I want to talk to about Caltrans because she says she is the future forward uh, looking person at Caltrans, which what, what we're going to be talking about, what the future looks like and how Caltrans is changing that for transportation. So Jeannie, thanks for coming on. 
Thank you so much for having me. So I wanted to ask you about the past 15 months that we've all gone through and, and find out what you have seen and noted in terms of data, facts, figures um, about how Californians are using their cars, public transit, the roads, and transportation in general. What's really stood out for you? Well, it's been a wild year and year and a third, right, or year and a quarter so far um, since March when uh, the state really went into stay-at-home order and, and, you know, kind of immediately activity just dropped off. Travel demand on all of our systems dropped significantly in the, in the immediate aftermath. So um, I was just looking back at some data um, today of travel in, in all of our California cities. Um, and, you know, we had drops of um, driving dropped off like, you know, 50, 60% um, in those first couple of months through, um, you know, April, May, June of last year. Um, and, and same with transit. The transit was even more impacted. So, you know, buses and trains, people just, they weren't going to work, um, except, except, of course, for those key essential workers, which thank, thank goodness for them, um, they were definitely still using our transit systems. Um, more buses than trains. There is a difference between, you know, who uses um, buses versus trains predominantly. But, um, you know, some of our transit systems saw as much as 90% ridership drop um, initially and um, just huge impact. I mean, we saw service, we had to have service cuts across our transit systems um, and that included Amtrak and the inner city rail um, JPAs that you talked about that Caltrans is um, uh, plays an important role in helping to manage. Um, but then, you know, travel started to creep back up after that first um, impact and, and, you know, into the summer, we saw that initial surge and then um, the, the uh, surge started to drop off. And so people started to travel and, and through kind of late summer, early fall last year, driving came back up almost to pre-pandemic levels and even beyond in some in some areas of the state, um, transit stayed pretty low. We did see it start to come back. Um, and again, there were people that continued to rely on transit, people that don't um, drive, that don't have access to vehicles. Um, we had to continue running transit um, to provide that essential service. Um, so, you know, we, we sort of saw travel come back and then it dropped again in the fall and the winter. And of course, the, you know, the worst surge was around the holiday times and into January of this year. Um, so driving dropped back down, you know, more um, just a little below pre-pandemic levels, but now it's, it's back. People are, people are out, they're eager to get out. So I think we're seeing um, travel really jump way back up. Um, you know, workplaces are still not really the drivers of that travel. So um, in most parts of the state, you know, retail, recreation, that kind of travel is way up. But workplaces is still um, down, you know, 30, 40 percent of um, what we saw pre-pandemic. So really interesting to kind of watch how that's going to change just over the next few weeks and months as people are returning to work um, and, and things are just opening back up. Um, I think there's going to be a big, you know, a big spike back up. We are hopeful on the transit side as vaccination rates have increased, we've definitely seen people coming back on transit, much more comfortable to be in spaces with other people. Um, so that's really, uh, you know, big relief because um, we've we've really um, seen our transit um, systems pretty hard hit by the ridership losses. Right, which we talked about with uh, Robert Powers at BART about, about that in part one. And, you know, I, w I was thinking about this as you were talking about the past 15 months, how it, it went up and down when I was driving around in the beginning of the spring. Just it was so weird. I, I thought this is really, I have the roads to myself, which is exciting, but also scary. But I did think, oh, this could be a good time for Caltrans to work on projects without having to worry about uh Interfering. Yes. Definitely. And we took advantage of that for sure, which, you know, was certainly a boon. I would say one of the unfortunate effects of the roads being so empty is that people were driving a lot faster. And we actually saw a lot of safety issues over the last year. Fatalities and serious injuries, especially risk to pedestrians, went way up, which is surprising. You think people are driving less, that safety would improve. But um, we actually saw the opposite effect. Congestion has this unfortunate effect of it slow, slows people down, but slowing people down actually creates safer conditions for 
people who are vulnerable on our roads. That's right. There are some upsides to uh, road traffic <laughs> and congestion and, yes. and rush hours. Um, so I did want to ask going forward about, based on what we've seen for the past 15 months and what you've seen, has the pandemic changed the way that you're planning you know, your short, mid, and even long-term projects? Like, Are you prior, prioritizing different projects now uh, over others based on the last 15 months? We definitely are thinking very differently about planning. And, and um, interestingly, we were kind of in the middle of um, developing our long-range plan, our California Transportation Plan, which is the statewide plan out to 2050, um, right in the middle of the pandemic. And so we actually did some additional analysis um, on you know, what we thought the effects of telework might be long-term at, at that point. You know, we really didn't know. We were kind of you know, speculating, saying, here's kind of a range of scenarios. Um, but we did take another look at, um, you know, how some of the pandemic effects might change people's travel. Um, so that's one thing. I think, um, you know, the, the wide swings of travel demand that we've seen over the last year definitely make us um, realize that we need to be a lot more nimble in how we are operating our transportation system to be able to respond to, you know, short-term spikes, which is not really when you think of big infrastructure, we don't operate quickly. We don't change course quickly. It takes decades sometimes to, to uh, design, you know, plan design and then, and then ultimately construct some of these really big projects. So um, being more responsive sort of calls into question whether we should be doing some of those really long lead, um, big changes to infrastructure because they're just not as responsive to um, to the the real time travel demand changes that we've seen over the last year, so that has made us think a lot. I think in terms of projects that are already in the pipeline, again, it's it's hard to you know make immediate shifts, but we're definitely taking another look and trying to uh, evaluate you know where how many of those are needed and and um, should we be going back to the drawing board and and I think things like technology, things like um, kind of demand response operational strategies will be a lot more useful to us in the future um, for, for a lot of reasons. And we'll, we'll get into them, I'm sure, but um, not just because of the pandemic, but the pandemic has been a good test of why those, those kinds of strategies are going to be more important to us in the future. And I'm assuming funding also comes into play, too, when you're thinking about projects. Absolutely. And yeah. uh, I, one of the the most recent uh, funding um, vehicles that uh, I know the public has looked at was the road tax, right? The the char the gasoline charge that went on to fund more uh, um, transit improvement and and road um, infrastructure. But now that we're looking at you know future forward of um, of transportation in cars, uh, you know electric cars, more fuel efficient cars, that that road uh, tax. Uh, may not be the best bet. So I was, I actually met someone who was in a project, a research project that Caltrans did earlier, well, in uh, fall of 2020, uh, looking at maybe a research on a road user charge as an alternative mm -hmm. to that state gas tax. So I was, what's, what's, what is Caltrans looking at when it sees, okay, this, this uh, state gas tax may not be the best way for funding. Right. What are, what alternatives are you looking at now? So Caltrans has a road user charge program. We've been engaged in this now for several years. And as you said, we've done a lot of research. We've done some pilot projects. Um, we definitely see a need. And I think, you know, all of our transportation agencies across the state see a need for a long-term sustainable replacement to the gas tax. As you said, you know, we're, we're, we have these very ambitious goals to electrify vehicles but if vehicles aren't using gas and paying for that tax at the pump, that is primarily what funds the maintenance of our of our roadway system and a lot of our transit system as well. Um, so switching over to sort of a vehicle based vehicle mile based uh, fee um, is it, it's it's a direction we've got to go in the future. Um, so we're doing a lot of work, as you said, you know, research looking at you know, the projections over the next 10, 15 years, um, when we anticipate, you know, 100% of vehicle sales by 2035 in California are going to be um, zero emission. So we've got to, we've got to figure that out um, to make sure we can still 
maintain our our vast infrastructure. And it did seem during the pandemic, you know, obviously, or during the past 15 months, so much happened. One of the things that uh, I was interested in reading about was the, I guess, the battle between the the Trump administration and California on fuel efficiency and vehicles and auto companies taking a stand. And that really did seem to strike a, what is the future of, of cars on the road? And uh, tied into that, I was recently watching a keynote by your boss, the Caltrans director, Taksama Shakin, about the electrification of California. So we go into cars specifically with Craig Siegel in, in part two, but I did want to ask about the electrification of, of California and California transportation, especially when I talk to you in a day where it's 107, they may rolling blackouts <laughs> in the grid. Yeah. You know, what, what, where are we with electrification and where, where will that play a part in, in transportation, do you think? I mean, it's, it's huge. It's so critical. It, it's, a, it's obviously like, been kind of the centerpiece of California's strategy around um, addressing climate change because, you know, 40% of our greenhouse gas emissions in the state are from the transportation sector from tailpipe emissions. So that doesn't include, you know, oil extraction, refining, that is, is additional. So it's, you know, you could consider it like half of our emissions in California are a result of you know, how much oil we use in, in the transportation sector. Um, so we've got to focus on transportation and um, electrification is, is you know, a, a, it's not an easy switch, but it's, you know, it doesn't take a lot of behavior change. It takes, you know, getting into a different kind of vehicle. And so um, we definitely, um, you know, it's a huge part of the strategy. Craig is the expert in terms of, you know, how that's all going to happen. But what we're doing at Caltrans is um, because we also play a vital role with our transit and rail systems, we are using a lot of the um, infrastructure investments to also support a zero emission transition in transit and in rail, which includes both passenger rail as well as freight rail. And, and we still do have a lot of emissions contribution, both on the greenhouse gas side, as well as on sort of diesel particulates, which are the really harmful localized air pollution um, problem um, from, from freight rail, from rail locomotive um, emissions. So we're very interested in that and we're working with um, the Air Resources Board. They're, they're a strong partner um, in that work and we're we're super committed to it. Caltrans also it owns the roadway network, you know, the state highway system in California. So we are also playing a role in helping to build out the charging network for passenger vehicles on the state highway system, particularly in corridors, you know, rural corridors, parts of the state that may not initially attract private investment for charging, but that we know need to fill key gaps um, to be able to, you know, help people get over that range anxiety um, when they when they first purchase an electric vehicle. Do you work with the private sector a lot on this? Because it does seem like I read so much about, well, obviously there's Tesla and there's all these car companies that are changing the way. So does, and we are in a state that's known for technology and innovation. So uh, do you work with the, the private sector a lot uh, in this area? Absolutely. I, we, we, um, we do have a lot of partners on the technology side. I think, um, you know, one area where Caltrans is really doing some other pioneering work is on autonomous vehicles, connecting autonomous vehicles. And so we're definitely partnering um, with the private sector and with the academic uh, community. Um, like we have great partners at UC Berkeley um, in their uh, transportation program that are um, helping to do research with us on um, connectivity between vehicles and the infrastructure and, and how that will work as we start to have more um, of those vehicles on the roadway. That sounds very cool. Um, and then obviously there's the federal uh, angle. Um, and right now yeah. we hear a lot about the infrastructure plan that the Biden administration has, and we'll see where that goes. But um, depending on where it goes, Obviously, if it passes the way that uh, the Biden administration wants it to, there would be a lot of money, obviously, for California. If it doesn't pass that way, can California still get some ambitious stuff done? I mean, I'm not asking for specific numbers. I don't even know if you know, but is that going to be how much does federal funding play a role in the ambitious projects that you have 
planned? Federal funding is critical. Um, and so there's there's sort of two bills under discussion and, and several versions of each bill, but there's the federal reauthorization of just the transportation um, bill. And then there's also this American Jobs Plan, the sort of stimulus package that's under discussion. So, you know, we are counting on those reauthorization funds. That's got to come through. That it that does represent a big picture of the funding that comes to California, both to Caltrans as well as to all of the local agencies that money passes through us. And then we provide a lot of the oversight as well as technical assistance to cities and counties and transit agencies um, that, that rely on those federal funds as well. So, um, so, you know, that is critical. I think the stimulus will be a huge opportunity for us to really, you know, as, as the Biden administration has talked about this sort of once in a generation investment in infrastructure, you know, repairing roads and bridges and and they they've got a great term that I really like it's not just about fixing it first but about fixing it right um, which includes doing things like climate adaptation resilience preparing for potential future effects of extreme weather um, as well as making making our you know roads and bridges as we're repairing them making them safe for all users really modernizing the system and then of course you know they're proposing, significant investments in rail and transit, uh, modernizing those systems as well and, and expanding them, which is will definitely help um, support our vision in California. And I have a couple more questions about a couple of other ambitious projects that I that I hear Caltrans is involved in or or, or may may be involved in. But the first one is about uh, equity. Obviously that has come up a lot uh, equity and racial justice yeah. in the past 15 months. And Caltrans, I believe, was working on or had an equity statement b- right before the pandemic hit back in January of 2020. And this does seem interesting to me because, um, you know, equity and transportation, what does that look like in terms of, um, example, a current neighborhood that may be underlooked or overserved? You know, is it, it cons- consulted? What would happen in terms of um, current transportation there? Say, for example, like a highway that just goes through. You know, can you can you take it out or make changes, or is it more uh, looking forward on how future planning can um, make things better? Because I know there's so many angles about uh, the equity statement that Caltrans has. You know, jobs, but I am really looking at the the transportation planning on the ground mm-hmm. in neighborhoods. What do you What do you envision that to be with a statement? Well, there's there's so much that we could do. I think you hit on a couple of really important ones. Um, you know, the way we are, have been thinking about equity at Caltrans, and we we've been thinking about this for a number of years, even though the the last year really has put you know, a very sharp lens on um, on racial equity in particular um, in the national conversation. That's helped. I think that's really pushed us. Um, and, and it's also, you know, great to see, again, the federal government being a strong partner and really coming out with some, some commitments and, and statements that really reflect, you know, what, what we're also saying in California, which is great. Um, but in terms of what it really means, I mean, I, it starts with um, an honest conversation about the history of the transportation system. And I don't think, you know, everyone really knows and understands um, when we built the freeways and and also a lot of our transit systems, you know, we, we kind of just went right through communities, particularly communities of color um, and low-income communities that didn't have the political power to fight back against big infrastructure projects. And so the damage that that did, not just in displacing um, homes and businesses at the time, but also in now, you know, creating this legacy of sort of a divided community and, and the air quality that comes from the vehicles um, has huge health impacts. There's also safety impacts because you've got kind of high-speed traffic you know, coming on and off ramps and, and um, the risk that that puts to people who may not have a vehicle and have to walk and have to take the bus. Um, there, there just are really significant disparities between um, the benefits and the burdens that communities experience from their transportation system. So we, you know, we acknowledge that in our statement, uh, which is an important first step. Um, the next thing is to do our 
planning work differently. So now when we talk about, you know, we're going to start a project, we need to go out and do some planning studies. You know, we, we want to go into communities that we know have been underserved based on the data, based on the history and engage more deeply with that community and really have a conversation about what are your needs? How can we make sure that this project is going to better meet your needs and provide the benefits that, that you know you want? Because people understand their communities better than the big transportation agency um, coming in to do a project. Um, so that's a key piece. The engagement piece is also really important. Um, but as you said, I think our projects are going to look very different in the future because of that. You know, we want to make sure we're providing, you know, basic infrastructure like sidewalks and safe crosswalks and um, traffic calming for high-speed traffic. Um, it also means investing um, in, in our transit system so that those essential workers, the folks that rely on transit to get around, really have a better experience, that their, their bus is more frequent, it's higher quality, you know, that, that it's easier for them to access. Um, so all of those things also. But you even mentioned, you know, taking down some freeways. That is something that we are, that we are looking at. Um, Oakland is the is the example, you know, that we really are having a serious conversation in Oakland about the 980 freeway um, and, and whether that's an obsolete uh, facility and, and whether the community wouldn't be better served by actually um, repurposing that and um, making better use of it for, for whatever that looks like. And that, that we're early in that conversation, but it is a real conversation that's happening. So, you know, reconnecting those communities that have been divided by freeways, even if it's things like pedestrian over and under crossings, you know, improving connectivity like that can make a really big difference in these communities. So all those things are on the table. Well, I do have to ask actually about uh, being in Sacramento, there's I-5, Interstate 5, that mm -hmm. I know they did tear some down some neighborhoods back in the day to, to make that run through between the river and the state capitol and uh, any plans for doing something there? Because it's such a, you know, you can't see the river and it just feels like it is a, it really is a divider. So any insight, any inside scoop? We're, you know, there's, there's nothing concrete planned right now, but we're definitely having a conversation with the city of Sacramento and, um, and we're open to it. We're doing planning studies, um, all over the state on how we can better reconnect communities across our freeways. So um, we're, we're open. And I think it needs to be, as I said, a conversation with the community about how we can serve them best and not just the vehicles kind of flying through on the freeway. So last question for you is, is something I, I, I think that Caltrans is maybe indirectly involved in, uh, I'm sure there's some in involvement there because it has to do with the rail and high-speed rail. Mm. Uh, I know uh, when Jerry Brown was our governor, that was something he was really, really uh, uh, focusing on and it has gotten through, has gotten a lot of pushback and it's not on track, so to speak, of where it, he wanted to be. And I, 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 I'll just be... I. I'll be biased. I went to Europe and I've been on the the high speed trains they had through France and Spain. I loved it. And I think, why can't we have one here? But is it feasible? I guess we're not, maybe we're not Europe in that way. So I was just wondering in terms of your point of view as someone who works at Caltrans, someone who's uh, looking at the forward, you know, forward thinking plan of California, where does high speed rail fit into our future or does it? Well, I don't want to speak on behalf of my partners at the High Speed Rail Authority, but I will say from Caltrans perspective, and, and we're responsible for the state's rail plan, um, which, you know, we look at high speed rail as ultimately kind of the backbone rail service to a lot of inner city rail connections that are going to, you know, help connect up the Bay Area, connect up Sacramento, all the way down into Southern California and San Diego. Um, so high-speed rail is a key piece. And I think what I what I will say optimistically is that we had some really good news just in the last couple of weeks and that the federal government did reinstate their commitment to California high-speed rail um, in the tune of almost a billion dollars that, um, that, that had been committed and was in jeopardy under the Trump administration. And now the Biden administration has recommitted that funding. So that is really good news for us. And I think... Um, you know, Newsom is is very committed to the project as well, and the the uh, 
May revised uh, budget proposal did include a significant amount of state funding as well for high-speed rail. So um, it's underway. It, you know, we're we're very optimistic that again, you know, rail travel can be um, viable, can be a significant part of our transportation system, especially in the you know modern uh, future that we're looking towards, where you know we need more efficient ways to. Um, get people around the state than driving. We we can we can't keep driving to the level that we do today if we're really serious about meeting our climate change goals. So, um, I think it's a key piece. I'm optimistic, um, and and we'll you know we'll be investing in all of those other rail uh, connections in the meantime, so that we really do have an interconnected system. Well, it's going to be interesting to see uh, how and where you have us driving or where you have our the trains taking us. So uh, it's really interesting to look at transportation. And, and thank you very much, Jeannie, for, for walking us through it. And uh, yeah, it's thank very, you. very um, kudos to Caltrans. I live by Highway 99 and there was a four-day shutdown, but you ended it early. So bravo. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks and, so uh, much. <laughs> good, luck, good luck with the forward, the forward-thinking future of Caltrans. Appreciate it. Thanks for the conversation. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers, This Changes Everything, Episode 13, which was recorded on the triple-digit heat wave days of June 17th and 18th, 2021. Thanks to Bob Powers of BART, Craig Segal of the Air Resources Board, and to Jeannie Ward-Waller of Caltrans for talking with us. Also, thanks to Nate Graham and Caleb Clark for recording and producing this podcast. And of course, thanks to you for listening. If you find our podcast worth listening to in these topsy-turvy times, please make a donation and support our efforts to produce more informative and inspiring conversations about what Californians should expect in the post-pandemic future. You can do that, as well as keep tabs on upcoming podcast episodes, events, and other information about us by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org. 